The views expressed are those of the speakers and do not reflect the official policy or position of the National Center for Disaster Medicine and Public Health, the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences, the Department of Defense, or the United States government. Podcasting from Rockville, Maryland, home of the National Center for Disaster Medicine and Public Health, a center of the Uniformed Services University. We are the nation's academic center for education, training, and research in disaster medicine and public health. This is Disaster Dialogues, Perspectives from the Field, a podcast where we meet with the disaster health experts to hear about their real-life disaster experiences. And now, here's your host and director of the National Center, Dr. Tom Kirsch. Welcome to part two of the second episode of Disaster Dialogues, Perspectives from the Field. I'm Tom Kirsch, the director of the National Center for Disaster Medicine and Public Health. In this episode, we'll continue our conversation with Dr. Brian Flynn the Associate Director of Health Systems at the Center for the Study of Traumatic Stress and an Adjunct Professor of Psychiatry at the Uniformed Services University. What are a few key lessons that you've learned over your disaster mental health career that you'd like to share with others? Well, we could do a whole <laughs> segment on that one also. Uh, I guess the first thing that comes to mind uh, is the resilience of the human spirit. Uh, I've had a a tortured relationship with the term resilience uh, because I think it's real. Uh, I've seen it be real. Uh, you know, I was trained fairly traditionally in my psychological training, uh, as most people are, to identify and treat illnesses, pathology. Uh, that's how our whole system is based. That's how our reimbursement system is, is organized. I didn't learn much in my training about what makes and keeps people healthy. Uh, to oversimplify, I think we learn, we learn and know an awful lot about mental illness, a lot more than we know about mental health, what makes and keeps people healthy. Um, so uh, that was one of the first things that I noticed when I went on disasters is, uh, you know, while yes, people do develop clinical depression, yes, they do develop PTSD, that's not the rule, that's not the norm. The vast majority of people really take a hit psychologically, but they come back from that in some very dramatic kinds of ways. Another thing that really has struck me over the years is the dedication uh, and goodness of responders and disaster workers. Uh, I've worked alongside uh, these folks in many different kinds of situations over many, many years, and to a person, they're just some of the finest people I've ever, ever worked with. Um, I think that means that we need to prepare them, we need to protect them, uh, we need to serve them well uh, when they have psychological, uh, uh, psychologically negative uh, responses to their work. Uh, but uh, it, they're, they're amazing people. I guess I tend to become oversensitive too when I hear disaster response workers criticized. <laughs> Everybody can be criticized, but you know, I've, I've been there, I know what happens behind the scenes, and I know that a lot of those criticisms really should not be visited upon them. Uh, and, and it makes me angry, <laughs> frankly, when, when, when that does happen. Um, the other thing that struck me, or another thing that struck me, is how many people in this country are 
living on the margins in every respect, uh, every, uh, every way that can be determined. Their health status is marginal, their mental health status is marginal, their economic status is marginal, their social status is marginal, and you get them then clobbered with a massive disaster and they fall off that wall. Uh, they are people who are just making it, uh, but they could make it, and now they can't make it because of this, and there's a cascading effect. And so it's, it struck me uh, that there are so many people that, we, that don't come to the attention of governments, don't come to the attention of social services who are just making it until something like this, this happens. Um, <laughs> I also think one of the realities that I've learned is that every disaster is a political event. Uh, and people who don't know that or try to deny that are in for a heap of trouble. <laughs> um, you just, uh, things happen in a disaster that don't make sense. Uh, and it's often because of political involvement, things that are frustrating, people, things you'd like to do that you aren't allowed to do. Um, uh, <laughs> One of the complications of Hurricane Andrew, I often say, never have a catastrophic disaster in a presidential election year. Um, you know, everybody running for office was parading through there saying how they'd do it differently and better and how badly all these workers who were working there were doing. That's pretty disheartening for the folks who are trying to do something. So disasters are always political events. I've also learned uh, a lot about the role of culture. Uh, in disaster response um, and how we really need to customize and tailor our responses uh, respecting the, the culture of the folks that we're, we're dealing with. There is not a one-size-fits-all. Uh, I'll give you a couple of dramatic examples to make the point. Um, I uh, worked once uh, on a flood disaster in Alaska uh, up on the Arctic Circle. Uh, there were three villages that got flooded by a river. It sits uh, right on the Arctic Circle. These villages were destroyed. Uh, one of them actually couldn't be rebuilt and had to be moved. Uh, another village, the, all the residents were evacuated from there and had to go live in Fairbanks while the village was being um, rebuilt. But these were primarily native Alaskan uh, uh, f folks who were impacted by this and uh, as I uh, got to, to know a bit more about the Native Alaskan culture, uh, one of the things that I learned was one of their beliefs is that if you talk about bad things happening, you cause bad things to happen. Well, probably the worst job you can imagine is to be the, the, the head of disaster preparedness in that village. <laughs> then, you know, one of the hallmarks of, of, of helping people through these crises is help them get prepared for the next one so they have a feeling of control, of mastery. Well, if you can't do that because of cultural beliefs, then you've got some particular challenges. And if you try to do that without knowing that cultural belief, you're going to be seen as irrelevant. You may alienate the folks. So good example of, of how cultural beliefs impact the response. I think the last thing I'd, I'd, I'd say in response to your question, Tom, is that uh, one of the things that I've learned, at least in terms of disaster mental health, is that there's a place um, in this for everybody uh, in preparedness, response, and recovery. Uh, again, our default setting is 
Well, the primary need or the, the only need that really is, is, is present is to be able to provide counseling to disaster victims. And I don't want to minimize the importance of that. That is important. But we also need people who understand communications, who understand needs assessment methodologies, who understand epidemiology, who understand logistics, who understand training. Uh, so I have yet to meet somebody uh, for whom I thought if they have an interest in this that there's not a role for them. And so I, I, I think uh, the more we can help people appreciate that there is uh, a wide variety of uh, extraordinarily important roles that folks can play in all three stages uh, of the uh, disaster life cycle, the better off we'll be. Disaster mental health is a very broad topic. Are there particular elements that hold special promise in the field? I think there are. Uh, I think the first I would mention would be the importance of preparedness. I've alluded to this before. Uh, I've spent a lot of time in my career working on preparedness because it can make or break a response. Uh, and I think uh, nationally and internationally we're seeing more emphasis put on uh, preparedness than we have before. Uh, you don't just uh, start day one, hour one, when the impact of the disaster hits. Uh, we really have to um, uh, put effort and funds uh, and time into preparedness. The other I mentioned a little bit also, and that is communication. I think if we can become much more sophisticated in how leaders in particular communicate uh, before, during, and after uh, disasters, uh, we have an opportunity to uh, do a lot of good uh, prevention and mitigation work. Um, I also think uh, that uh, the area of support of responders uh, is important. And I think there are a lot of things that we can do, again, before an event happens to help prepare responders. And in my view, that starts with job description, selections, training, uh, expectation, personnel policies and practices. Uh, but I think there are a lot of things that can be done before an event happens as well as during an after event to help our responders. They're very promising. I think one of the exciting areas uh, that holds great promise is a focus on leadership. Uh, again, good leadership can make uh, a response. And I think preparing leaders, supporting leaders is very important. There's some very promising uh, writings and courses and, uh, and academic work being done uh, in this area. What are some of the key elements of a positive disaster mental health effort, and what are some of the pitfalls? Well, some of these I've alluded to before, but maybe uh, they warrant uh, repetition. I've, I've covered preparedness. Um, if there is good preparedness, I can virtually guarantee that the response is going to go better. If there is not good preparedness, I can virtually guarantee it's going to be compromised. The area of integration of effort is very important. If FEMA is not working well with the healthcare community, that's not working well with the behavioral health community, that's not working well with the schools, that's not working well with social services, it's going to be compromised. Uh, if, those, uh, if those efforts are all integrated, um, uh, you're, we're virtually assured that there's going to be a better effort. 
uh, I think another important area, and again, the, the, the problems and pitfalls are, are, the other, are the flip side of coins here. Community fit and sustainability of mental health efforts is important. Uh, the mental health efforts, as I mentioned, have to be consistent with the culture, but it also has to be consistent with what the resources are in that community. It, uh, it, it's problematic uh, if during a response phase a lot of mental health resources come into a community that are short-term and then they leave. Uh, so designing and building something that is sustainable and fits the needs of the community is very important. I would also just say again uh, that I think one of the promising areas uh, in disaster behavioral health is the recognition that there are roles for everybody uh, in here and we're only limited to our imagination in terms of what roles people with various interests and expertise can, can play. Uh, one of the great changes uh, that I've seen during the time I've been in the field is that I don't feel like I'm in sales anymore. Uh, when I first started doing this, I felt like I had to convince everybody that mental health was an important factor. I'd hear, well, you know, that's really not as important, you know, as uh, this, that, or the other. Or, well, that happens later. We don't have to worry about that now. I don't hear that anymore. I'm not in sales anymore. I'm not trying to get to the table. And people like me aren't trying to get to the table much anymore. We're at the table, and the challenge becomes, what do we have to say once we're there, uh, and what kind of a contribution we can make? So I think that's uh, that's been a, a very positive development. Uh, that's uh, uh, maybe not easy to see at any one individual time slice, but over the course of my career, I've seen it change dramatically. Give us an example of some of these roles you talked about. What what kind of advice would you give to someone who's interested in a mental health career? Well, someone who's involved in, in mental health, who has an interest in disaster mental health, as I said, could play any number of roles. If you're a child specialist, there's certainly needs that children have. One of the roles that can be played is to provide teachers and parents with information uh, that can provide anticipatory guidance about what to expect in children a month from now, six months from now. Uh, so the development of educational informational experience is important. Uh, as I believe I mentioned before, uh, assessing what and where the needs are going to be uh, are important. A lot of mental health people are involved, uh, particularly in the public sector, of, of anticipating where needs are going to occur and how to uh, distribute and organize services around that. So people who may not have had much experience at all in disasters who have those skills can, can be a big help. Um, people who study communications, as I mentioned, uh, can help. There are particular things that happen with people in high stress situations that affect communication. Uh, we tend to focus on the negative. Our attention span isn't uh, as, uh, as long uh, as, as it should be. There are very specific cognitive and emotional things that happen uh, in the transfer and retention of information. So people who know about those kinds of things can, can be very helpful. Uh, again, as I, as I mentioned, I think the limits are only our, our imaginations. Um, I think uh, there's uh, certainly for anyone who wants to be part of this kind of activity really needs to do that as part of an organized effort. The area, the, the time of the freelance uh, 
volunteer uh, who is not part of an organization, is not part of a formalized response structure, that, that really is co coming to an end at this point. Uh, the, the disaster response, disaster management is getting much more formalized, um, even down to basic things like credentials. To get in, in close to the scene, you just can't do that much anymore unless you have a credential and you can't get a credential unless you're part of the system. So um, uh, being part of an organized structure, whether that's uh, National Disaster Medical System, whether it's part of the services provided by the American Psychological Association, the Red Cross, become part of a structure. There's a, there's a, there's a, there is humor in disaster uh, work, and one of, the, one of the things that's talked about often uh, in a half-humorous uh, half humorous way is um, uh, that one of the crises that happened during a disaster is the SUV crisis. Uh, the spontaneous uninvited volunteer. <laughs> uh, it's a problem uh, because there's no way in the middle of a response to really evaluate the legitimacy of somebody's credentials, the appropriateness of their training. And so managing people who arrive at a disaster site, even if it's with good intention, even if they're skilled, it's problematic because we, nobody knows who they are. They haven't been vetted they, and they aren't part of an organized response. So. Um, I always encourage people to uh, avoid the uh, SUV crisis. What are the biggest challenges facing the disaster mental health field in our country right now? From my perspective, one of our biggest challenges is the lack of good intervention research. Uh, that kind of research is very difficult to do. But uh, as I mentioned, the crisis counseling uh, program has been going on since uh, 1974. And it's based on a particular model. We don't have time to go into what that model is. But there really has not been uh, what I would consider to be credible research and evaluation about whether that model works, whether it works as well or better than other kinds of models. There's, every, there's a wide variety of ways to approach interventions in a disaster. Uh, and we just don't have the science, the research, to really tell us which works better in what situations for what kinds of people. I know if we were able to do that, we would find their differences. I don't know what those differences are because we don't have the data. It's a legitimate, important part of disasters, and I think that uh, we, we really suffer for not having as much science as, as we need. And it's not because people aren't interested. This is very difficult to do. It's expensive to do. It's not as, quote, clean, unclean as other kinds of research. So you're going to have, you know, more methodological questions in this kind of research. So even though it might get approved for funding, it doesn't get scored high enough when compared to other kinds of research to get funded. So uh, if I could wave a magic wand and and get us something that we don't have now, it would be more intervention research. I also think one of the big challenges uh, that we have is uh, the changed and changing healthcare system in this country. Um, when the crisis counseling program started, we had comprehensive community mental health centers that served uh, a geographic area and they served everybody in there. 
now the definition has changed. <laughs> uh, community, you may see something called a community mental health center, but it services pretty much exclusively people with serious and persistent mental illness. They have waiting lists. Um, they, they don't have staff that are free or trained to do the kinds of things that we used to traditionally think of as community mental health services. Um, reimbursement systems are primarily based on giving a diagnosis and treating. And as we mentioned, that's part of this uh, equation, but it certainly is not uh, the entire equation. So we have a mental health, a public mental health system in particular uh, uh, in this country that's changed over time. And as we hear every day in the news, it's evolving. And it's involved, not evolving in a way that makes it malleable and flexible uh, uh, enough to, in my view, serve the needs of a, a wide variety of, of disaster victims. Do you have any final reflections on your career in the field of disaster mental health? That's a great question. Maybe one of the <laughs> toughest that you've uh, that you've asked. <laughs> um, I think you know, going back to where we started this conversation, uh, I think one of the things that my career has reinforced is uh, where I started out: <laughs> that there is value to public service. Uh, I cannot imagine a more rewarding career, and it. It may sound odd, but I consider it to be one of the greatest honors and privileges of my life to be with individuals, families, and communities in their darkest hours. Uh, most people don't get to do that, and I got to do it for, for many years. Uh, how often have we all heard after a disaster, oh, I wish there was something I could do. I wish there was some way I could help. Well, I was able to do, I was able to help, and that's uh, enormously gratifying. And um, whatever the stresses and strains were on me, they were minor compared to the rewards that I felt and, and continue to feel uh, for having had the privilege of, of doing this kind of, of work. I also think uh, that, uh, that we need to be morphing our terminology. Uh, a little bit. Uh, we're uh, at a little bit different place than the rest of the world is when we think about uh, disaster response and I, and I include disaster mental health as, as part of that. Uh, the world is talking increasingly about disaster risk reduction uh, and that's because most countries in the, on this planet can't afford to do disaster response. We're very fortunate in the United States to be a wealthy country, so we can afford disaster response. And you know, when you when you see the budgets <laughs> for disaster, you see how big they are. But the reality is, we can pay those as this country. Most nations, many nations, cannot, and so they are looking with a much more focused eye than we are on reducing the risks uh, of of disasters occurring. Uh, we are doing some of that, but not to the extent, not with the, with the single-minded focus that other nations are. And I think we need to continue to morph uh, into that uh, because I think particularly as we get to issues like climate change, um, you know, these are issues that are going to, to call for very different kinds of strategies in terms of uh, risk reduction than, than, than we've been thinking about. 
Um, I guess I'd finally say that one of the things that this career has, has helped me do is discover or rediscover or reinforce some very simple truths uh, about life <laughs> and, and about living uh, that I either didn't know or sometimes forgot. Uh, uh, among those are things like the power of nature. Uh, you know, as we get urbanized, as we get affluent, we begin to think we have control over things we really don't have control over. And that gets reinforced on a day-to-day -day basis. You know, in the summer we go from our air-conditioned buildings to our air-conditioned cars to our air-conditioned houses, and we don't really have to think about what the temperature is, whether it's raining, mm. whether we got a drought out there. But the reality is Mother Nature will have her way. <laughs> Here, nature will prevail. Um, and I think we get a little arrogant sometimes in thinking that that doesn't apply to us or that we can control those kinds of things. The resilience of people, uh, again, I, I mentioned, uh, we forget in an illness-oriented, pathology-oriented healthcare system culture in some ways, we forget you know, that people have enormous strength uh, and resilience and we need to understand more of that, we need to promote that, we need to honor that. Um, I've also seen you know, uh, the example of how good people are, large numbers of people when it comes to responding in a crisis. Uh, yes, you, you, know, you hear about the problems, people, people exploiting these situations, but in my experience that's really very rare. Uh, it's been extraordinarily um, gratifying to see how basically good people are when given the chance <laughs> uh, to, to, to be good, and I've seen that repeated over and over. I've also seen um, how powerful families and community support and cohesiveness can be. Um, you know, if you, if you look at risk factors for adverse psychological income, uh, if you look at adverse consequences of stress, uh, one of the greatest predictors is the lack of social supports. One of the most protective factors is the presence of social supports. We are social animals. And so I have seen time and time again how positive and healing family community can be uh, when they're there to support and when there's cohesive support. So in some ways it's been a career of, uh, of, of reteaching, of teaching me things that I should have known all along, uh, but now I've uh, had the opportunity to, to have uh, reinforced time and time again. Where should folks go to learn more about the Center for the Study of Traumatic Stress? We have a great and newly designed website. Uh, if people would like to go to www.cstsonline.org, um, they can uh, have access to a, a wealth of information. New research, uh, we have a lot of um, uh, one-page pieces of advice that we've developed. Uh, for the general public and for healthcare providers on a wide variety of topics. Um, we uh, have updates on things that are emerging in the science. Uh, and there's a lot of information there and we're very pleased with uh, uh, how uh, 
accessible it's become in our redesign of, of the website. So I would encourage people to, to go there and spend a little time exploring. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Disaster Dialogues, Perspectives from the Field. And thank you, Dr. Brian Flynn, for taking the time to speak with us. Join us next time to hear more disaster health perspectives from the field. Thanks for listening to Disaster Dialogues, Perspectives from the Field. If you like what you just heard, we hope you'll pass along our web address, www.usuhs.edu forward slash ncdmph or just search for NCDMPH. Also, follow us on Twitter and Facebook at NCDMPH. Be sure to check out our archive section on our website for previous episodes. This has been an NCDMPH USU production. Join us next time for another edition of Disaster Dialogues Perspectives from the Field.